You can also do passive data mining via forums and communities to find topics that people care about quite a bit. For us in, in the content marketing and SEO space, right? We've got Traffic Think Tank, we've got Superpath. People are asking questions all the time in there. And like you see repeated questions asked. And if you can write a piece of content about that, and here's the important thing, triangulate that with a keyword that you can estimate the search volume for and the CPC and all of that, you can start to get a lot of clarity on what the, the real pain point is and where somebody is in the customer journey. And then the final piece is really on like your unique brand POV. So all of the rest is really market data and market facing. But then it's like, what is your unique position on that? How does your product uniquely solve that? And if you can interweave that and match that with the customer pain point in the keyword research, that's like the center of the bullseye. So I'm trying to find those terms. Hi, and welcome to the Optimize Podcast. My name is Nate Matherson, and I'm your host. On this weekly podcast, we sit down with some of the smartest minds in content marketing and SEO. Today's episode is unique from some of our other episodes. We are diving deep into all things conversion rate optimization. I always like to say that page views don't equal dollars, and CRO is a big part of any growth channel. I'm thrilled to sit down with Alex Burkett. Alex is a co-founder at Omniscient, an agency that helps B2B software companies with content and growth. Alex is one of the best when it comes to CRO, and before starting his agency, he worked with a number of incredible companies like HubSpot in growth and user acquisition roles. In this episode today, I'm excited to learn more about his approach to CRO, how we run experiments, measure the performance of our channels, and ensure that we're generating qualified leads and not just traffic. This episode of the Optimize Podcast is brought to you by Positional. At Positional, we're building tools for content marketing and SEO teams. We've got a great selection of tools for everything from content optimization to keyword research and technical SEO. And you can visit our website at positional.com. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm stoked. I love talking about CRO. I don't get to do it as much anymore. So I'm very excited. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation. CRO is like a big part of any content marketing and SEO channel, because once we get the traffic, we need to ultimately convert it because that's the reason we're all building these channels. And I would love to learn like a little bit more about your background. I know at your agency now, you, you kind of do everything from content to SEO and CRO. How did you get into this world? What led you to starting this? agency? Yeah, we were starting way back in college. I, I didn't know any of these terms. I didn't know what content marketing was. I didn't know what... I think I read an ebook on SEO when I was in college, but it was really basic. I read bloggers like Tim Ferriss and Ryan Holiday and followed kind of their journeys. And Ryan Holiday in particular was interesting because before he did all the stoic stuff, he would write his lessons from his job at American Apparel. He would write his life lessons and political lessons learned. And I just thought that was really cool. So during college, I started my own blog and I was writing about what I was learning in internships and in classes and for books I was reading. And I kind of built this little portfolio up, which, you know, I was kind of doing content marketing for myself at the time. And then when I got out of college, I really wanted to get into a tech startup. I thought entrepreneurship would eventually be the route for me. So I with that portfolio in mind, I got a job at this really early stage company called Lawn Starter. Uh, it was pre-seed. I was sitting around the table with the founders trying to find product market fit and they were heavily SEO influenced. So it's it's sort of like a marketplace for uh, lawn care. So like Uber for lawn care. And on the demand side of the equation, we basically did a bunch of local SEO. Uh, so we did programmatic landing pages and then content. Uh, and that was largely like ego bait listicles, link building. So quite different from, from the B2B approach, but I learned, I cut my teeth there. Later joined CXL, which was a totally different approach, very premium email list building style content, thought leadership. I rarely looked at SEO. Sometimes we would try to 
append a keyword to the topic, but really it was about talking about pain points in the industry. Worked at HubSpot, where you know, it's like the, the machine of all machines uh, when it comes to inbound. So I learned a lot about process, content ops, and content conversion there. I was working in the growth and freemium acquisition side, uh, so technically not on the content team, but I would work with the content team. I was always in and around content adjacent to it. And then I took a, a little detour, uh, went to Workato, where I ran the experimentation team and the experimentation program, optimizing conversions towards the product and on the site, working on paid landing pages and onboarding. And then uh, at some point at HubSpot, I had started the agency on the side with my co-founder, David. We later brought on Ali as well. We all worked at HubSpot together. How we started it was basically, I was sitting at a bar in San Francisco during a uh, conference, sitting with my old boss, Pep Laya uh, from CXL. And he was complaining about how hard it is to hire a content marketer. He's like, yeah, I'm looking into these agencies and you know they charge this much and here's their deliverables and this and that. And David and I, just, we were already doing content consulting uh, just on our own. And we had talked many times about building a business together. And we just looked at each other and we're like, I think we can do that. I'm pretty sure we could do this. So we just started tapping into our network and kind of built it slowly over time on the side. Eventually it hit this critical mass where we're like, all right, we gotta we gotta go all in or call it a side project, right? This is either a business or we're just doing this for fun. Let's do it as a business. And we all jumped in full time probably last year, April, May-ish. So it's been about a year, a little over. Amazing. And like, what is CRO or conversion rate optimization in uh, your words? Well, I'll start. It's easier to define something by explaining what it is not and the misconceptions around it. So a lot of people, including prominent executives, think CRO is just like a list of tactics. Or, you know, if you're a CRO expert, you're going to come in and be like, all right, sprinkle some social proof here, add an urgency countdown timer here, optimize the CTA with this button color, and magically your conversions increase by 200%. Definitely not the case. It's also not synonymous with A-B testing. So a lot of people think it's, it's purely experiments, purely randomized controlled trials. In my mind, CRO is more of a framework or an operating system. So it's basically the scientific method applied towards optimizing a goal and many times conversions, conversion rate, but it could be anything, right? It could be click-through rates. It could be reducing churn rate. Like I, I look at it as a very generic kind of general term for an operating system where you take data and feedback, put it through a system and a process that often includes tools and statistical methods. And then the output is better decisions. And the better decision is, is usually around optimizing towards greater revenue, greater conversions, some sort of a business goal that businesses care about. And for me in my career, like CRO has always been incredibly important. At our first company, we had like an entire team dedicated to like taking our traffic and figuring out like how we could extract more value from it. And at my first company, like we thought CRO was not, I don't want to say easy, but it was easier. Like we were marketing consumer financial products. We would throw like an ad for like a credit card in front of someone and like they would click on it. It was like a very high converting type experience for like our readers and our customers and for us as a business. But then more recently spent some time in like B2B SaaS, specifically in like the dev tool space. And like we found that like bringing that user through the funnel and ultimately converting them, it had like a lot more nuanced and there were a lot more decisions to be made, whether it was like pushing someone to book a demo or signing up for a free trial. When you're thinking about like CRO for like your customers or in your roles previously, like, how do you like go about defining like what that goal or that conversion is that you're optimizing for? Well, it, it really depends, right? Like it depends on the business model. And I totally agree with you. Some models are easier to, to apply CRO to than others, specifically like consumer spaces where you've got much more traffic, much more conversion volume. So basically your statistical power is much higher and you can see smaller wins in the B2B space, like especially for, let's say like an enterprise software company, you know, how many people can you potentially sell to? How many leads can you potentially have? 
have. So A-B testing is often like not even warranted in those cases. But the goal depends really on like how the, the product is set up, right? So a company like, let's say Jasper, uh, AI content writing tool, they have a freemium version or a free trial. You can optimize towards that. Um, that's a relatively low friction gateway into the product. And then basically all of the optimization and product management work comes from the onboarding up until the monetization point versus a company like, I don't know, SAP or something like that, right? You're probably not going to optimize for demo requests or talk to sales, except on core pages where that intent is actually key. And that's another point too, is like, you're not always optimizing for the same goal across the site or across the product. It really depends on the context of the specific experience. But then you're really trying to map out a funnel or trying to bring people from maybe problem problem unaware, solution unaware, all the way down to the point where they're comparing your product among others in the space. And then you're you're optimizing towards that end conversion. But a conversion, a goal, I mean, it's it's really subjective. A lot of the times in content, we're dealing with content or uh, conversion assets, things like eBooks, trying to get people onto an email newsletter. In our space, in, in my specific context, right, we have an agency and we're going to charge upwards of, of 10K a month. And that's not something that people tend to make on a whimsical decision. But um, we're basically looking at our email list as the freemium version of our product, so to speak, right? We're, we're doing a weekly newsletter. We're talking about the things we're learning in the field, uh, client case studies, interesting thought leadership, and you get to know us and get to know our processes. So if we can get people in the door through that email list, eventually on the email list, there's going to be a certain amount of people who self-select as ready and qualified uh, to work with us. And that's at the point where we can start sales conversations and we've, you know, we've got a contact page and we can optimize that obviously towards like qualified leads and qualified conversions. But we're looking at approximate conversion much higher up the funnel just based on our business model. Yeah, I think you make a really good point there that like your conversion or what you're optimizing for should be different depending on like where in the funnel that page or that piece of content falls or like that user that you're targeting is. And I think this is like a big mistake that a lot of our customers make, like they'll blanket have like the same call to action across every single page on their website when like these pages fall into many different stages of the funnel and like one page might benefit from like an email collect whereas you know a more down the funnel type piece of content where someone actually is looking to buy a tool might benefit from like a hey book a demo right now type cta so i think that's a really good point and i definitely would be like for all the listeners thinking about okay where in the funnel do these visitors fall and then trying to craft like specific ctas to that point in their journey when you think about like the different types of CTAs or like different types of conversions, like email collect is like an obvious one to me, like book a demo right now or start a free trial is like an obvious one to me. In your career, like what other types of like CTAs or like calls to action have you seen work well in like the B2B SaaS space? All right, I'll get tactical in a second. But I think first off, like the thing, a, hur- a good heuristic is, if you're just starting on this work, you want to try to optimize uh, towards the best value, which is usually going to be more towards the revenue point. So if you don't have any data, if you don't have any content to like say, this is the conversion rate to an ebook, to an email list, to a demo, like I would try to create a content strategy that maps towards that demo or that product signup or that actual purchase on the website and then work your way up. Because oftentimes people start with the assumption that they can't do that. And they'll start with very high level CTAs around like, you know, follow us for more insights, join our newsletter, blah, blah, blah. When they actually probably could you know, in some cases, they could actually be driving more actual product users. So that's a good heuristic to start with. On a tactical level, let me think about CTAs. So first off, have CTAs. A lot of the times we're speaking in the content and SEO standpoint now. A lot of the times content marketers are very shy. They're very sheepish around putting CTAs on the blog post. They don't want to be too salesy. You would be surprised at how many CTAs you can put on the page and not dilute the user experience. 
Now, you probably don't want to go Neil Patel level, right? You don't want to like have a 20, 20 CTAs and pop-ups before you ever get to read the first paragraph. But on the other hand, a lot of the clients that we work with, we look at their their existing blog posts and we're like, actually, before you even create new content, add a CTA at the bottom of the blog post, right? If 20%, if 10% of people reach the bottom, my friend uh, Brian Massey calls this a dripping pan CTA. It's just like when you reach the bottom, there's going to be a very small percentage but they're pretty high intent. They read the whole post. They're pretty excited to sign up. Just like it's really low hanging fruit. So add that on there. And and I'm kind of getting to a point here. Like uh, I've got this framework for content conversion where it's like there's three kind of levers. There's the offer itself. And that you, you can kind of bucket those into like content or code. The code would be, and this is in a software context, obviously, but uh, code would be something like demo request, uh, product signup, anything related to the product itself, right? Like that's going to be a, a very business proximate signup. And then content could be anything from eBooks to quizzes, to webinars, to podcasts like anything on the content side, on the media side. So you've got to choose based on the intent of the content. And oftentimes, like if you're dealing with bottom funnel content, you can go more towards the code, you can go more towards the business offer. But if you're doing content like thought leadership, or let's say an article on like what is SaaS SEO, probably not going to be able to sign somebody up for a product based on that. So I would I would look more on the content side. And then P would be, uh, you know, position. So we've got O offer P position. The position is really the real estate on the page. And heuristically, I try to do three CTAs uh, on a page. You can test from there, but if you have something above the fold, I've seen it at HubSpot, it was very effective to put this CTA in the author bio. So it basically, it would look like it was coming from a recommendation from the author that wrote the post. It'd be like, if you like this, you know, read this whole ebook that I wrote on this topic. Um, but it could be in the introduction, it could be a text CTA, it could be an image CTA above the fold. And then you want to have a dynamic CTA. Uh, so that could be an exit intent pop-up, that could be a scrolled up pop-up, something that is behaviorally based. And then you want to have that bottom page, that dripping pan that uh, basically, uh, you know, signals for the 10, 20% of users that reach that point. You want to have something at the bottom to capture that. And then P, the last P would be persuasion. So we've, we've got OPP, like naughty by nature, right? <laughs> and the persuasion is really the messaging, the design, how you actually speak to that offer. So if you're offering an ebook on the state of the AI industry, um, you could just say, grab our state of the AI industry report, or you could change the copy to say, afraid of getting left behind? Like, don't be. Here's our report that shows, you know, 20% of executives haven't even implemented this yet. But there's a million ways that you can speak to the same offer. There's a bunch of different designs you can do, a bunch of different tri triggering mechanisms. Um, so these are all the different ways you can sort of filter in CTAs. Tactically, a couple CTAs that are pretty interesting to me in the B2B space. I like to use different industries as inspiration because it breaks you out of the mold of doing the best practices and copying competitors. So in B2B, everyone's doing webinars. Webinars are easy, kind of banner blindness at this point. In the consumer space, uh, it's very common for a D2C brand to trigger a CTA for a quiz, right? So if you're on a coffee website, it's like, take this 10-step quiz to figure out which type of coffee is best for you. You can do that in B2B too, and you can make it fun. We did that, for instance, for our podcast, We're like get a customized podcast playlist based on your unique attributes. And I think quizzes, anything interactive, anything fun in the B2B space stands out. And this is very ephemeral. I don't know if it's going to work next year, but that's a fun one right now. No, I think that's really interesting. I actually haven't seen like a B2B SaaS company that we work with use a quiz, although we've got a handful of like consumer facing companies who are very actively using quizzes as part of their CTAs. So that might be something we try uh, here at Positional. And I, and I do think you make a really good point like our customers will always ask me like how do i increase conversions on this page and like the first thing i'll typically tell them is just add more ctas like i agree with you that people are usually a little too timid you know if you're only using like a single cta at the top of your header you know as soon as someone scrolls like they're no longer seeing that and so like you kind of described i think adding ctas within the text of an article or at the bottom of the article or a 
or on the sidebar or you know table of contents that floats with you is uh, is one of the first things I would do. And then I also do agree with you that pop-ups, uh, I know some people hate them and like don't want to add them to their websites, but like in my career, like I've had pop-ups make like $10,000 a month in revenue. And so I know that pop-ups are actually really, really useful. Like obviously you don't want them to be intrusive and you should allow like your reader to click out of them and not disrupt like an experience from an SEO side of things. But pop-ups, yeah, they can be super effective and actually driving conversions. And there's a lot of easy testing that you can do, I've found with pop-ups as well. Moving on a little bit. So say for example, assuming like my positional website was getting 100,000 visitors per month from like organic search. And like we were to hire like someone like you to come in and like help us, you know, improve conversion rate. Could you maybe speak a little to like your process? Like what are, what would be those first things you would look at in like the first 60 days or like, what would you do in the first 60 days to try to improve conversion rate across my website? It's a broad question. We can break it down. First off, I would ask you to define what a conversion means across the website and whether that's the same across the website. Okay. In my example, let's assume that a conversion is like a new free trial. And uh, I've got, you know, like a, a product, let's call it like $200 a month. And, you know, it's a more expensive product, but it's, you know, not like an enterprise $50,000 a month product. And like, I'm primarily trying to get people in the funnel from like a free trial. Is that some helpful context? Yeah, for sure. And then the next question I would ask is if you have a data infrastructure that has been measuring the conversion rate across all pages, how much historical data you have, if there's any data anomalies, and if we need to debug anything from a data side, I guess we should probably assume for this exercise that everything's appropriately in place. But that would be something before I would ever start doing tactically anything. I got to make sure that the data, the telemetry, everything's in place so that we can actually track the changes because it's not always. At this point in time, in this example, we've got like basic Google Analytics set up. Like we've got some event triggers set on like the different CTAs, like, but that's about it. Maybe there's some things that we could do to go and improve the actual tool set that we're using or, or how we're tracking this data. Yeah, yeah, totally. So as part of the exercise, I'm always going to go in and debug and audit the analytics setup. And in this case, because you are product led, you're doing a free trial. I would want to connect in some way to a database, your product analytics and your website analytics, just so so we can also make sure, and maybe this isn't possible yet, given like the sample size and the traffic, but we can potentially track downstream whether those free trials convert and we can actually figure out like the revenue per experiment, right? In the beginning, it's probably fine just to optimize towards free trials, especially if you're just, you know, flexing that muscle. Uh, but eventually you'd want to connect those two systems. Okay, from there, I'm going to basically build out a growth model. I'm going to find the baseline conversions, assuming that everything's set up appropriately in Google Analytics or whatever web analytics tool you're using. Figure out baseline conversion on the website as a whole. The average actually here, here's like a, uh, this is going to be kind of snarky, <laughs> just forgive me, but average website conversion rate, it's a useless thing because what you could do is basically you could cut off all the pages that are converting below average, uh, from a search perspective, you could cut off all the paid sources that are converting below average and you could gate all of your content with an email gate or a free trial gate. And it's probably going to be a business poor decision because your overall conversion volume goes down, but conversion rate goes up. So we have to think in terms of context, right? And what I'm trying to do with that growth model is figure out, all right, so what's the landing page flow that leads to a conversion? Like, are we going homepage to landing page to pricing page to free trial signup page? Uh, is that flow appropriate? What's the bottleneck at each step? Like, is is the homepage like very low engagement? We can use uh, uh, quantitative uh, growth modeling to do this. We can figure out how many uh, visitors are on each page, how many convert to the next step, etc. And then we can sort of like stress test using the model based on like uh, assumptions. Like, if we increase the conversion rate by twenty percent of this step. 
what is the down funnel impact of that? And basically we can start to sig signal map and figure out what areas of the site are most important. With that, I would also ask you qualitatively, you know, have you tried testing different areas? Because I've worked at companies in the past where, yeah, the conversion rate was lower than it should be, let's say on a given page, let's say the demo sign up form, but they had been testing it for two years and basically had maxed out the, you know, like there was, there was not much else they could do. So it's like knowing that and having that documentation helps me say, all right, maybe we'll look at this in the future, but we're going to ignore it for now because they've already done a lot of work here and there's an under-optimized page that hasn't really been touched in a while and maybe we'll, we'll focus on that. But I'm trying to impact map. With that, I triangulate with qualitative data. So let's say the homepage converts quite low and let's say, you know, we use like a heat map tool or a user testing tool or session replays and we, we see people don't even make it down the fold and like there's a false bottom of the page, right? It makes it look like, you know, you can't even scroll. So like then there's certain things we can do to fix that and get them to scroll down the page or we can lift the CTA up or like optimize the top. Like there's things that we can do qualitatively based on that information. But I'm really just building a map of the territory to figure out where I should put my focus. Then there's going to be more uh, basic research to tr try to build like a roadmap of hypotheses. I'm trying to find broken stuff on the website, low hanging fruit, things that we can fix and with a very high probability are going to increase conversion rates or at least lead to a better user experience. And I'm going to prioritize those early in the roadmap. We may not even test those, right? If we've got things broken on mobile, we're just going to go fix those first. And that's probably going to increase the conversion rate. And if it doesn't, it's at least going to lead to a better user experience. And as you add 100,000 more visitors, it's going to be a good experience for them. And it's going to show up in the data. And then you're, you're basically trying to gauge like what is the potential impact of a hypothesis? What's the confidence level that it's going to work? And what's the ease at which you can implement this. And there's tons of scoring models you can use. There's the ICE framework. There's the PI framework. I like the PXL framework from CXL, obviously, because I worked at CXL and was there when we launched that. But it's based on objective criteria that tries to get you a confidence level based on binary scoring. So it's like, has this issue shown up in user research? Like, is this page greater than 10,000 visits? You know, like it's got a bunch of objective things that you can say rather than say, like, how confident are you on a scale of one to 10 that this is going to work? It's like, I don't know, like 10. Like, I, I came up with the idea. So obviously, I believe in it. And then I'm just going to go down that roadmap, figure out like a testing plan and try to start launching tests. And if you've got 100,000 visits a month, you've likely got for a trial sign up, probably, you know, at least 1,000 to 5,000 free trial signups. So you've got adequate conversion volume to run A-B tests, at least on core pages. And then if you don't, right, we're, we're going to make looser decisions. We're not going to run, you know, proper controlled experiments, but maybe we're going to do some message testing or qualitative testing to just validate the assumptions before we push those changes live. Well, thank you for answering my very broad and difficult question. I think it was a good answer and that we kind of walk through at first, like the tooling that we kind of need baseline and then kind of walking us through the framework and kind of reviewing what work's already been done, trying to identify those new opportunities or pages that could have the biggest impact and value. And I do think in that example, like we've got, you know, quite a bit of traffic already. So I agree with you. There's probably quite a bit of experimentation we could do with, you know, a hundred thousand people coming to our site each month. Can I add one more thing to the previous answer before we move on? Yeah, totally. Okay. Cause the other thing that I was thinking about, I was speaking purely from a CRO perspective, but putting back on my SEO and content hat or traffic generation hat, I would also start to diagnose like the traffic that's coming in, right? Because conversion rate, it's um, there's two sides of the equation, like the numerator and the denominator. It's a composite metric. So it's like the numerator, that's how many people are converting. And that's what I was focusing on. But really the people coming in, right? Like if you are uh, inviting in a bunch of unqualified traffic, like you'd start to look in terms of like your acquisition strategy. And then it's like, all right, if you're if it's SEO that's bringing in people, like is it high intent? Are there opportunities to build out high 
high intent pages is a lot of this unqualified glossary type traffic where it's like definitional terms, right? Like I would, I would start to figure out like, can we inform a better roadmap that brings in higher quality visitors? Because no amount of CTA testing, no amount of design is going to change somebody from being unqualified, unable to buy, uninterested in buying to doing so, right? You can't trick somebody into that. So I just wanted to add that point is it's like the, the, the traffic, the people that you're bringing in is the most important factor in conversion optimization. I think that's a good point. And so in the B2B space, like from the content SEO perspective, like how do you identify like those keywords or like how do you know like what pieces of content to create that might be like higher intent to kind of help the denominator as you you've described? Yeah, I like to triangulate based on a couple different data sources. So the most common one is keyword research. And the common format or formula for that is basically search intent or conversion intent. So you can use CPC as sort of an indirect proxy for how valuable the traffic's going to be. And that's what tools like Ahrefs and SEMrush use when they're calculating traffic value. It's basically like the estimated traffic per month times the CPC. That's one way. You can also, if you've been in the space for a while, you can start to like do SERP analysis and figure out, okay, this keyword is clear bringing in people who are comparison shopping for a software product. They actually understand the space, right? And there's patterns to those. So it'd be like HubSpot alternatives, best CMS software, best sales tools, HubSpot versus Marketo. Anything where they're like mentioning a product or a category is going to be fairly high intent. But then you can map backwards and there's there's keywords in the middle ground, the middle of the funnel often that I find are pretty uh, propitious, quite lucrative as well. How-to terms, if you're invoking the product, call that product-led content, right? Ahrefs does that really well. So a term like how to do keyword research, could actually lead to a lot of customers if you invoke the product in the content as well and show somebody, well, how to do keyword research with Ahrefs as opposed to just a generic how-to article, which also is helpful for the visitor too. It's it's actually a better reader experience to actually show them screenshots and show them walkthroughs uh, using like a concrete platform. But yeah, you're basically using search intent. But I also like to triangulate that with customer research. So pain points, figuring out what words people are using. Because oftentimes in B2B, these tools, Ahrefs, SEMrush, et cetera, they're very good, but they're not always accurate. And especially for low volume, high intent terms, you'll find oftentimes, I think it's called zero, zero search terms. People talk about that where it shows up as zero in the, in the search tools, but then they write the post and it gets hundred thousand, et cetera, visits per month. So it's like not all of the terms that people are searching for are represented in the tools. So you're going to have to do some customer research yourself. And I find gong calls, sales calls, uh, customer support transcripts, customer interviews. You can also do passive data mining via forums and communities to find topics that people care about quite a bit. For us in, in the content marketing and SEO space, right? We've got Traffic Think Tank. We've got Superpath. People are asking questions all the time in there. And like you see repeated questions asked. And if you can write a piece of content about that, and here's the important thing, triangulate that with a keyword that you can estimate the search volume for and the CPC and all of that, you can start to get a lot of clarity on what the, the real pain point is and where somebody is in the customer journey. And then the final piece is really on like your unique brand POV. So all of the rest is really market data and market facing. But then it's like, what is your unique position on that? How does your product uniquely solve that? And if you can interweave that and match that with the customer pain point in the keyword research, that's like the center of the bullseye. So I'm trying to find those terms. Makes sense. Yeah. And I agree with you that like the keyword research tools can often be like incomplete, especially in B2B and especially in like categories like developer tools where like the clickstream data providers just don't have like an accurate sample of, you know, someone that's looking for like API testing tools. So I always say to our customers, kind of similar to what you've described, like to write down like the questions you're getting from your current customers and prospective customers. And even if in like a keyword research tool, there's not a whole lot of search volume for that keyword. If you have that strong gut feeling about a particular piece of content, I always still say to create it because at a minimum, it'll give you something to 
share with your customers when you're doing customer support or share with your prospects as you're you're trying to convert them through the sales funnel. And I also agree that like the alternatives and tool versus tool type posts are, are very high, highly converting. Um, when I was in like the B2B space with our large organic search channel, like the alternatives and, you know, tool versus tool style posts would, would often convert the best. And as well as like those tutorials where we're weaving like our product into that tutorial on how to actually solve like a problem or question that someone has, like just to get tactical on my end real quick. A big mistake that I uh, see our customers make with alternatives posts is that they will display themselves as like the only alternative. So it might be like an article like Salesforce alternatives. And like, we want to market HubSpot, for example, if that's like our product. And you know, the single alternative that they show is HubSpot. But like a searcher for that keyword really wants to see like a list of alternatives. And so I always tell our customers, like it might feel uncomfortable, but if you really want to rank well for Salesforce alternatives, you need to display like that searcher a list of alternatives. And you can of course put yourself at the top, but like the search intent there is that someone wants to compare likely a large number of alternatives to that specific product or, or service. And I think the same goes with like tool versus tool content. Like another mistake I'll see our customers make is they'll do like their product versus another product. And especially if it's like a startup and no one's heard of their product before, like no one's searching for like HubSpot versus, you know, some new CRM that we've never heard of but they are searching for like HubSpot versus Salesforce. And so I would probably go after like Salesforce versus HubSpot as that primary keyword and then kind of throw yourself into the mix as like a third alternative to consider. So I think it, it might feel uncomfortable for our listeners to like extract your brand maybe out of an alternatives post or a head to head and make it a little more subtle. But I think those pages will ultimately rank better in search. Is that something that like you've seen or is that something you generally agree with? Yeah, yeah. It's like it's the flip side. Like marketers can be so stubborn, like the flip side that I was talking about before, where they're so shy about adding their own CTAs and their own you know product in the content. It's like this is the other side where they're like, we, we can't mention the competitors. But it's like if you ma- you want to match search intent in order to rank and if you're writing a listicle of the best you know CRMs and you don't mention Salesforce, you're clearly missing something that is industry like universal. It's ubiquitous. Like you have to mention Salesforce, right? So yeah, it's like, a lot of the times they don't want to mention any competitors, which, you know, dead on arrival, you're not going to rank for that. It's just not what people are searching for. That's a product page, essentially. And if you're HubSpot, maybe you can rank a product page, but that's typically not, not what's going to work in those comparison blog posts. Another thing is like trying to just find like all of the smallest and, and worst competitors. And it's like, you, you definitely like you, you need to list the ones that people are going to expect. Put yourself in position one, a hundred percent. Like that was a huge fight that I had to make at HubSpot was like, Hey, let's put ourselves in position number one, totally fine to do that. Most people don't even notice the logo on the top of the site. I'll say that because we have these listicles on the best content agencies and I get tons of leads and I'm like, where'd you find us? And they're like, Oh yeah, I was Googling and I found some lists that you were written about in I was like, you know, we wrote those. <laughs> They're like, no, no, no. Um, so it's always funny, like how you know, yeah, people are very shy about putting themselves at number one as well. Your thing on the comparison pages uh, made me laugh because it's like those, a lot of the times you see those on paid landing pages, but it'll be a, a comparison table, right? With all the features. And it's like, your product has all of them. And the competitor has none of them. And it's like, so this competitor is horrible, right? Like they're, they're absolutely atrocious, but it's like, it's so unrealistic. Like who trusts that, right? Like, and if you, this is a good argument for good product marketing. Good product marketing is not um, naive. It's not idealistic. It's realistic. And you're really pointing out your unique selling proposition, your unique features and attributes, and who cares about those. And if you have those things dialed in, you can create a realistic, honest, authentic chart and really say like, hey, this, in our case, this agency is a lot better at infographic 
graphics and design were much better at conversion focused content strategy. Like you, you'll know and you'll know who cares about that and you can start to target it in that way. But you can realistically say like what competitors are good at because they're obviously good at things, right? And you're obviously or hopefully obviously better at some things like that's core business and product strategy, right? Right. Yeah. And I would totally bring that copy into the pages. I think it improves the quality of the content for the searcher and will ultimately lead to your pages ranking better in search too. For example, if someone was searching for like CRM alternatives to HubSpot and they were to land on like my page, which is, you know, an alternatives type listicle, a best CRMs tools page, you know, it might make sense to position like a CRM that's the best for startups as like the best CRM for startups. Whereas we could position Salesforce as like the best CRM for like enterprises or, you know, I'm sure there are many other CRMs out there that have very specific use cases, best CRM for doctors. So I wouldn't be afraid to like use honest language when describing your competitors and what they're best for, but then you can use that same language or different language. I mean, to describe like what you're best at. So that way someone who's coming to your page, like those users that actually do convert are going to be, I think like much a better, a much better fit or uh, like much more qualified than maybe someone who is looking for, for example, like a CRM for an enterprise, but they're really a startup. So do you agree that like you should kind of enrich your pages with, you know, best product for XYZ on those listicle type posts? I think that's a good summary. And and that's actually a good heuristic for content in general is to provide a TLDR. You're going to want to back into why that's the case. So why is Salesforce the best for enterprises? Uh, I would explain that through features and like a deeper review of that. But I do, I like any time that you have like a TLDR because people tend to skim, especially on the these listicles like i doubt they're reading every little bullet point that you add they're not they're not they're just reading the headline and then they're clicking the button at least in my career <laughs> they're not yeah for sure so i think that is important and it's a good point too because yeah it's like there's no objective universal best but that's like people exist like you know like all, all across the spectrum it's like i like blink 182 you might like the rolling stones i like both but you know it's like everybody has different tastes when it comes to these softwares and like especially based on like company size or industry like there's going to be preferences I like that. And if you can identify that, it's very helpful from a content perspective. Totally. And when does it make sense to start focusing on CRO? Like say I'm an early stage company. I've been in business for five months. Should I be thinking about CRO right now? Or do I need to go out and like get more traffic before this actually should be a priority for me? Yeah, it really depends on how you define CRO. And uh, if we're attaching it to or synonymizing it, if that's a word, with A-B testing, uh, you don't have to, you shouldn't do it right away. Like that's, it's a waste of resources. The expected value in economics terms is pretty low. So I, there's, it's a hard heuristic to set, but let's say you need a couple thousand transactions or conversions per month. And to your earlier point on pop-up testing, you can actually get those to an email list or something like that much faster than like a demo request. There's some brands, honestly, like that may never get enough volume to run A-B tests on their core offer. Right. If it's a truly enterprise, like AB, like talk to a company that sells to airlines. How many, like there's 200, 300 airlines. Like they, they could probably never do that, but they can do it on their ads. They can do it on their uh, email list. Like they can, they can, they can do it up funnel. But I say like for statistical validity, you're going to want, a, you know, a thousand, 2000 conversions a month. And it just, it gets easier as you scale. Like when you're booking.com size, when you're Microsoft, like it's so much easier to do AB testing because micro changes are actually going to show up in the data. Otherwise at small scales, you're basically doing such innovative, complex tests. that It's like taking up so much time, developer and design time that like, 
like it, it, it tends to lose steam. Like people really lose interest in wrapping it up in an A-B test. And they're like, hey, let's just do really interesting stuff that's going to move the needle. Now, if you define CRO using, you know, customer research, qualitative data, like uh, validation through message testing, uh, user testing, prototyping, that might just be under like a UX umbrella. But, you know, that mindset, I think, can apply even as you're starting a company from scratch, right? If you have no traffic to your site, I still think it's important to think in terms of like a search standpoint, like from an SEO standpoint, what does this keyword mean in terms of intent? Like, does that match the business offer that I have? And if not, like, is there a content product that I can create and do lifecycle marketing from that point to get them to sign up? And I think that mental model applies at pretty much any stage. And for ad testing, like, you know, if you're running paid Facebook ads, like CRO is it's like innately intertwined with what you're doing because all of the traffic is so targeted to that landing page. Your conversion rate might be 10, 20 percent effectively your statistical power your validity is it's it's much easier to see changes on those so i guess that's a long winding answer to say it depends okay cool and i've got a couple quick questions before we jump into the lightning round so my next question is on ads because uh you mentioned it and a question that i'm always asked by our customers is like does bidding on adwords for like a high value keyword that we also rank on the first page for like help us in terms of organic search and i'll usually say like those two things are completely separate like if you were to ask Google, they would tell you like organic search is completely separate from from AdWords. But in your career, have you seen like any sort of positive or negative impact on like the organic search rankings for a page by also bidding AdWords for that particular keyword? Yeah, there's synergies. It's indirect, I would say. I, I think Google has explicitly claimed that there is no direct causation between the two. It's hard to like tease out the causality of why this is. Some of our clients have have seen increased conversions, increased traffic because of that. And when they turn off ads, like it goes down. I have a small sample size, but my confidence level, like not incredibly high in this answer. I did this strategy at HubSpot called the surround sound strategy where for terms like best CRM, you didn't want to just rank your page, your product page or your listicle. You actually wanted to be included on in all the listings because you start to create this surround sound effect where people say, oh, wow, this page mentions HubSpot and this one does too. And this one does too. Wow. Like, and you really, it starts to accumulate in your brain is like, this is somebody to take seriously. So I wonder if there's a mirror uh, exposure effect. Um, basically seeing something, seeing a brand more than once creates this uh, trust in your brain or, or brand recognition. That could be one thing. That's an interesting point on surround sound. And for all our listeners, like if you want to be included in those pages that are ranking well already for like best insert your name of product industry, like best CRMs, you can certainly go and reach out to the websites that have written articles on like the best CRMs and ask them if they will include you into their post on like the best CRMs. And like, of course, not all of them are going to say yes, but like in my career, I've had like a fair number of them say like, yeah, sure. Like we needed to update this post anyways. Like we'd love to include you into our list of the best CRMs to consider. So it's a pretty lightweight project. You could probably do this in like 30 minutes if we're being honest. And you never know. Like if you can get yourself included, you'll get like an awesome backlink likely and also can help with that surround sound effect like Alex described. Referral traffic too. Yeah, referral traffic too. It's really valuable traffic if you know, you're getting included into a page that's already ranking well for a keyword that you want to rank for. And then the next question I want to ask you is on like bad form fills or like unqualified leads. Like we've actually talked to companies where they're like, yeah, we don't want like more organic search traffic because it just like clogs up our pipeline. Like we don't know what to do with it. They're all unqualified. So like, how do you think about screening out or like cleaning the funnel? Yeah, say for example, you're driving 
lot of organic search traffic, but it's actually causing like issues for your sales reps or for your pipeline. Is there anything that you can do to like try to combat that upfront? Yeah, two uh, two sides here. The main one is it's a qualification problem. Like personally, I'll take twenty x the the form fills, and like I don't care if they're unqualified. Like I I will qualify them, and that's what a good CRM does. That's what HubSpot does, right? You could do lead scoring models. We do it on the form itself. We actually have uh, form fields. Our form is really long. Uh, we should honestly probably shorten it a little bit, but we ask budget, we ask uh, the revenue, their employee count, like a bunch of things. And we can basically say with a good degree of confidence, not for us. We're, we're relatively low volume though. So I guess like as you're scaling up, like you're dealing with thousands of leads per month, which we're not, we're in like, you know, tens to like 50 a month. So we can handpick them. But yeah, there's systems, there's tools that are built for this qualification mechanism. But I think it starts with really defining what qualified means to you. And a lot of brands don't have a clean, clear definition of what that is. It's a ridiculous example, but it's like you walk past a bar. <laughs> a lot of these bars have these A-frames and it'll say like, you know, free beer and false advertising or something like that. So it's like, don't promise free beer on the landing page if you're not actually, you know, if you're going to bait and switch somebody because like that click through rate, that form fill, it's just paper shuffling, right? So you need to set like principles or guardrails for the types of copy that you're writing, the types of messaging. I think within that sphere, like there's a whole lot of room for creativity. So it's not like, hey, be like a very boring, like, you know, business direct like blah, blah, blah. Like you, you can be creative, but just use good judgment and really ask yourself, like, is, is this the way a CIO would speak? Is, is this the language that like my target audience would actually resonate with? And if not, you know, just, just be honest with yourself and only use that type of language or only talk about that. You know, like if, if you're like for us, we're not going to write really, really basic content that maybe college students are reading. We're going to try to write content that VPs of growth, VPs of demand, VPs of marketing are likely going to read. I've really enjoyed doing this episode with you. If it's okay, we'll move on to like a quick rapid fire round. Does that sound good? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So my first question is on tooling. I know we touched on like Google Analytics as like a tool I've used, but is there a better tool out there? Should we invest in a certain tool as part of our CRO efforts? Probably. I feel like Google Analytics 4 now is like a whole conundrum for teams. We've still invested in Google. We've trained our team and have resources to implement Google Analytics 4, although it is much more complex than Google Analytics for non-analysts. I don't know what the alternative is for web analytics at this time. Uh, I feel like there's a couple B2B attribution tools that I've looked into, like Dream Data. HubSpot's decent. I think HubSpot's really good on like the marketing to sales connect. And you can see a lot of interesting data on the account level and the contact level. It doesn't, to me, replace a, a good web analytics tool. But I don't know, I guess for now, try to use Google Analytics 4. And if, if it doesn't work, I'm sure there's an alternative that's better. What's the biggest mistake you see companies make with their CTAs? Like just one, very pointed. <laughs> Not using them, you know, have a CTA, have a couple. And as far as like content creation goes, like how much does like an awesome piece of content cost here in uh, 2023? I, I'm having trouble with a quick answer in this because it really depends on the space and the subject matter expertise. You know, for uh, uh, you were talking about developer tools, you get an expert writing a long form piece of content on that. You could pay two to five K, but a consumer focused piece of content that ChatGPT could do. Is that even like that valuable anymore? Like one to 500? It depends so much. Okay. And then as far as like, uh, you know, transitioning a little bit to like SEO world away from CRO world, are backlinks like still important? Is that something we should be focusing on in 2023? Probably. At this point, we see it's effective in a targeted way, uh, especially for earlier stage companies. Companies. Once you reach a critical mass, a lot of this stuff should be passively done through content creation and passive link assets. I don't know where this is going to go 
as AI gets more sophisticated, as ranking signals change. But right now, we still the needle uh, still see the needle moving with targeted backlink building. And as far as working with you, like how can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to learn more about your agency and the services you offer? Well, the first challenge is to be able to spell the word omniscient. So it's beomniscient.com for the agency website. You can listen to our podcast, which is called The Long Game, available everywhere podcasts are. And if you want to read my crappy affiliate listicles, it's alexburkett.com. But I'm testing a bunch of SEO stuff on the website. That's the point of the website. Well, I will certainly read your crappy listicles after this podcast recording, but I'm glad that they're ranking well. And I've really enjoyed doing this podcast with you. Thank you so much for coming on. Awesome. Thank you so much. This episode of the Optimized Podcast is brought to you by a special sponsor. If you're anything like me, you've probably got a lot of content that's not very well optimized, and it can be a total pain in your butt to optimize it and ultimately get it to rank better in search. And that's what Positional does. Positional has an incredible tool set for everything from content optimization to technical SEO and planning your editorial calendar. And if you don't know by now, I'm one of the co-founders of Positional, and I'd love for you to check it out. 